And one thing I learned on a Hong Kong bank, there was a moment in time where we moved to site and actually lived on the site as, as architects with the contractors, and it was the best time of my life. It was fantastic. And I think I've always encouraged that. On, even in London, we would put a team on site, even if it's around the corner, because we think that's the way to go. The first episode of The Business of Architecture and Design is hosted by Angela Ferguson, Managing Director of Future Space, an interior design company renowned for its creative work with such leading companies as Google, Microsoft and PwC. Passionate about the built environment, Angela is a highly sought-after speaker and thought leader and will be a regular host of The Business of Architecture and Design podcast. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For the inaugural episode of the series, Angela talks to an English architect who spent nearly 30 years with Foster and Partners working on such lauded projects as the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation's headquarters in Hong Kong and 30 St. Mary Axe, better known as the Gherkin, in London, before founding his own practice, Make Architects, in 2004. Make now has offices in London, Hong Kong and Sydney. And now, over to Angela. Born in 1952 in Erdington, Birmingham, by the age of eight, Ken Shuttleworth knew he wanted to be an architect. Currently visiting from the UK, we are delighted that Ken has agreed to join us in the studio today for the inaugural podcast of the Business of Architecture and Design. Thank you and welcome, Ken. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's start at the beginning. What was it that made you want to be an architect? I always wanted to be an architect. So when I was a kid, I was drawing, um, making models, playing with cardboard, um, drawing all the time. And I just, I got into it when I was very, very young, about seven, eight. And I was, you know, designing houses, drawing houses uh, way back then. Also, I used to go to a library on a Saturday morning and the books I was really interested in were ones with pictures um, rather than ones with words. So I used to take the, um, these like, books that are all about, you know, fantastic houses in California and you know, these magazines about these incredible dream houses. And I think that's uh, sort of got me into architecture in a, in a sort of very strong way quite early on. So do you come from a creative family at all? Was there... um, yeah, my dad could draw, you know, draw really well. My uncle, his brother could draw incredibly well as an art teacher, but they were both accountants, my parents. Both, right. um, they weren't really uh, in the creative field. So, but, you know, my, my brother became an architect as well. So we've, uh, you know, sort of ran that we become more creative. And, you know, as we were kids, we were growing up, um, you know, making things all the time. And, you know, it's obviously back in the 50s, there wasn't much to do. And uh, in terms of, um, you know, there's no computers, there's nothing like that. So it was just, you know, it wasn't television when I was a kid. Um, so you used to make, you know, make your own entertainment. So it was great. So where did you end up studying architecture? I studied in Leicester Polytechnic, it's now called De Montfort University in Leicester, which is sort of close to Birmingham in the Midlands. And I was there in the 70s, so I was there in the early 70s. Um, I think Leicester was in those days. It was a you know really vibrant place to go. It was, um, it was a school of design, art and design, rather than school of architecture. So it was much more integrated with with fashion and um, you know people um, designing shoes, you know that sort of stuff. So it was you know it was a great place to go. So for you, I guess university was more about was it more about exploring ideas rather than learning the technical side of things, or was it a mix of both? Do you think? I don't think you learn anything technical right. at the university <laughs> at all. Um, it's all about ideas and exploring you know, space, exploring the way you want to um, make spaces for people, make spaces fantastic for people. Uh, and so for me, it was, it was all about um, you know, learning, using drawing. I mean, it came through drawing. I mean, most people in architecture in my generation 
Um, it comes through the fact that we can all draw. You know, most of us can use a pencil properly and, you know, we know what we're doing. And that's changed a lot over the last uh, 40 years. And I've heard there's a, a rumour that you earned a nickname when you were at university. Is that something you can talk to us about? Yeah, my nickname was Ken the Pen. Ken the Pen, Because right. I used to draw so quickly and I used to, we used to have what's called rotorings. They were like little, um, like ink uh, pens that you could draw with um, and they used to supply the ink sort of pump the ink through and I used to draw so quickly I used to break them and also they used to run out of ink um, and they were pain so I used to use pencil a lot but um, Ken the Pen was the, my nickname so I always produced more drawings than anybody else and so you know everybody's pin up was you know half the size of mine every time <laughs> so yeah I used, Ken the Pen is to, people still call me Ken the Pen now oh it's a good nickname to have <laughs> so when you graduated in 1974 was it was it difficult to get a job um, I was offered um, a few jobs, actually. I was offered jobs in Birmingham, which is where I was uh, brought up, and I was offered jobs in London. In fact, my teacher, um, John Lee, at the time, said you should just apply for the best offices in the country, which is what I did. Um, and at the time, Rogers wasn't hiring. Um, Grim- Fowler and Grimshaw uh, were hiring. I was offered a job there, and Arab Associates as well. But then I, um, the sort of start-up in those days was, Lord, was Foster, Foster Associates, as it was then called, and it was only been going about three or four years and I applied to that. I thought it was the most exciting place. So I applied to that and I got the job. So what was exciting about that? It's just, it's just so vibrant. I mean, it was, you know, the walls were green, you know, there's blue carpet. It was, you know, full of people in jeans and trainers. It was a uh, you know, really vibrant atmosphere. And, um, you know, they were just doing some really cool buildings. I mean, so, you know, way beyond what was being done at the time. Um, and it was really about sort of assembling buildings. They were, they were making buildings in factories and putting them together. So it was more, you know, rather than just bricks one on top of the other it was much more about sort of um, designing components to come together and I thought it was really exciting um, and I absolutely loved it when I was there 30 years I absolutely right. loved it so architects as as young people I think uh, in the 70s that was what attracted you to foster because you know the jeans and the trainers that would have been quite unusual then yeah because most people would be um, you know architects of my generation wear wool bow ties mm. um, you know in suits every day and I had a you know the guy I used to first work for had a rose in his pocket in his lapel every day and that's the way he saw himself as an architect with a bow tie and it was all very um, aloof and not really um, you know part of the troops part of the people actually building the building they were very architects then were seen much more you know as a sort of um, like a lord over you know lord over the, the projects um, well he is lord foster now isn't he Yes, but I mean, I meant my lord, I meant, um, you know, people, the architect would sort of come to site, the, the, the contractor would open the door for him in the car, you know, he would put an umbrella over his head, he would, you know, make sure he had a cup of coffee, you know, he would he would be sort of like the sort of um, the most important person on the site, right. you know, back in the... Back in the good in old the days. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily good, but yeah, it's changed, it's changed a bit since then. Yeah. So what was it like then, uh, working at Foster? It was fantastic. I mean, I had, as I said, 30 years there, it was unbelievable. We had project after project after project that were, were amazing projects. And, uh, you know, we grew from um, when I was there up to about 600 people. Um, from, a, you know, at one point it was only about eight or nine. So, you know, we I was part of that whole growth of Foster and Partners. And it was, um, it was great. I was made a director um, there. Um, and I absolutely loved it. We had a, we had a fantastic time. Um, you know, the Hong Kong Bank, uh, Hong Kong Airport, Wembley Stadium, the Gherkin, loads of projects that yeah. we produce one after the other. And did you have a good mentor when you were there at Foster or was it everyone just figuring it out for themselves? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, most people there were really good. So there was, there's, you know, a whole bunch of people you looked up to and um, learned from. And I say, you know, technically, you were, I was learning, um, you know, how to put a building together, basically, you know, at Foster Partners rather than a university. Um, so I think that that sort of, you know, working directly with really good people helps you to sort of to do that and learn how to put a building together. So you're at Foster, you said, for 30 years. So that's yeah. quite a long time at one firm, particularly in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Um, what kept you there for so long? I think the, the quality of the people, the quality of the uh, projects. You know, the, as an architect, you know, you just, you just go for the projects. And I think the projects are, um, you know, one after the other were just fantastic. So we were just, you know, always and always pushing ahead, you know, always exploring new things um, and making, you know, making um, each building different from the last one, or better than the last one. So we were always moving forward and learning as we went along. Um, I just think it was, you know, the most fantastic place to work. Mm. And did you have a favourite project that you worked on while you were there? I think you'd have to say it was the Gherkin. Yeah. Um, you know, there's loads which I really enjoy, but I think the one that's become a sort of landmark in London, um, you know, sort of groundbreaking project is actually set a benchmark much higher for central London in terms of office buildings, you know, I think is the Gherkin. It's always called 90, um, St Mary-Ax or um, Swiss Re or something like that, but we always call it the Gherkin. And was there a, a project that was perhaps one of the most challenging for you while you were there? I think everybody worked on a Hong Kong bank in Hong Kong back in the um, between seventy nine and eighty five. That that was pretty challenging mm. um, because we hadn't done a tower before. Our tallest building to date at that point was three stories, and we won a forty two story building. And we're again we're putting it together as components, um, which I think was was fantastic. But everybody on even Arabs hadn't done anything that big, and they were the engineers. So it was it's one of those projects that um, you know we all grew up on, grew up on basically because it was so. Um, innovative it was you know never been done in Hong Kong before it was like the only project in steel in Hong Kong everything else was in concrete um, you know we hadn't got any computers you know it was pre-computers so we were everything was drawn by hand um, on bits of tracing paper and overlaid and um, you know it was a pretty challenging project but I think it's one of those jobs even now you know I'd say on the Hong Kong bank, we did so and so. And it was you know, obviously, you know, upsets a lot of people because it's like so, so many years ago. But actually, it's still, you know, it still resonates that some of the things that happened there um, are still relevant. or yeah. definitely still relevant today. And it's a building too, I think, that architects love. My husband's an architect and every time we go to Hong Kong, we have to, you know, do laps of this building so we can take photo <laughs> after photo, you know. It's, um, it's an amazing yeah. achievement. Yeah, and it's now, it must be, well, we finished in 85, so it's, yeah. you know, it's quite a long time ago. So after many years at Foster in in 2004, you decided to go out on your own, which I guess must have been a a bit of a big decision at that time. What prompted that move? I think I got to 50 and I had one of those moments in your life when you think, uh, I suppose you'd call it a midlife crisis, but it was a moment in your life where you thought, you know, I need to probably need to try something else. And I, I'd been there 30 years. I, you know, had a fantastic time. Um, I just thought, you know, maybe I should try something else. So I was thinking of, um, you know, just doing some completely different, like helping with the Olympic bid or, you know, I don't know, helping with National Rail or something like that, something something quite different. Um, but then I sort of, you know, realised I really wanted to be an architect and that's what I enjoy doing. So I, I um, stuck with that. And I didn't necessarily want to set up my own company. I was, you know, I was talking to people about joining them and that was quite good fun. I got offered jobs. I offered, I think I offered about 12 jobs. Um, and I had no idea really I was that sort of popular or known, should I say, because yeah. I've been in, you know, within Foster for 30 years. Um, and, you know, and the decision was, well, if, if I've 
been offered 12 jobs, um, I must give it a go on my own. And if it doesn't work out, at least three of them will probably still offer me a job. Mm. So that's the basis in which I said so I'd make. They must have been shocked when you resigned. Yeah, it was, it was, it was quite a storm when I resigned, yeah, because uh, it had, you know, I'd been there, you know, man and boy, as it were. Yeah. Uh, I spent more time with Foster's than I did with my parents, if you think about it. Um, so I was basically, you know, there, you know, for most of my life, as it were, at that point, when I got to fifteen. So yeah, it was a, it was a it was a quite a storm, but uh, it was a good thing to do. Well, it's obviously been a good move. Yeah. Um, so starting your own business, and I think probably I guess one of the first decisions that you made was to not name the business after yourself. Yeah. Uh, which is quite unusual because most businesses are, or a lot of architectural businesses yeah. are yeah. named after um, older men. Um, so can you talk about that decision a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I was I was encouraged to um, use my own name. And I'd never really liked my name, to be absolutely honest. Um, you know, Shuttleworth's a funny name. Um, and when I was a kid, I used to stutter. And I never could never really say Shuttleworth. It's I a was. bit of a cruel name. Then. Yeah, and yeah. Ken was always a problem because it's got a cut in it. And I could never, so I never really, really liked my name. But I, I was, it was more than that. I mean, I, I felt that um, it's really important that the, the company grows, um, the brand stays with the company so if you know i go under a bus they haven't got they don't lose the brand um when i retire they don't lose the brand you know it's, it's a sort of universal brand also it means you know people can be go to meetings that um our partners have make um without necessarily having to be me all the time if it was my company you know it's always the same the principal's always supposed to go to all the meetings and that sort of stuff and i think i thought the way um to grow the company was not to do that was to have a sort of abstract name um allow people to to adopt that name as, as you know as themselves and also it's easy to give credit to people as well so when somebody's mm. built a building they have their name on the building so there's one um in the dojo in uh, darf it's got you know matthew white make architect so it's it's that uh, rather my name i think that's important as well so it's like so for me it was a it was something i really felt passionate about not to use my name and to actually make sure that uh, it was a company that would would go on forever without um, without me being there. So you started off in London, first office based in London, and then yep. later, now you've got offices in Hong Kong and Sydney. So what was the main challenge, I guess, around that growth? Well, we consolidated first in London because I think it's you know when you start a business, it's best to sort of not go too mad and try and do everything. So we we started in London, just built it you know gradually. Um, into a sort of uh, larger, larger affair, and made sure we, you know, we, we got a sort of sustainable growth. So, we, for me, it was about consolidating the, the 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 brand and making sure we were getting paid properly, and we can actually afford to, to run the business and make it sustainable. And it, and then we started to look abroad, and we actually got an offer um, to go to China um, with uh, a Hong Kong um, developer called Swire, big big developer. And that was 10 years ago. So we went out to China 10 years ago and set up in Beijing. Um, and then we, we did we did a project in Chengdu, um, various projects around Hong Kong. And then we come into Hong Kong and we've now got eight people in Hong Kong. And we love it. We absolutely love it because, you know, I, as I say, I worked at Hong Kong Airport, Hong Kong Bank. So I mean, you know, know the area really well. Uh, a lot of people in the office uh, also love um, South Asia as well. So it was, you know, in a way that was just just easy to go to. To, to Hong Kong and Beijing um, and in Australia it was, it was another leap because we then got a chance five years ago um, to with Brookfield to enter the project the competition for the project over Wynyard Station which is uh, so on Carrington Street between Carrington Street and George Street which we won uh, and that was fantastic so uh, we started a little office there 
uh, five years ago. And then since then, we then won another project called Project Sandstone, um, which is for Pontiac Land. Uh, and then we had we put more people on that. So we've got, we now got 24 people in Sydney, which is a bigger, much bigger team in Hong Kong. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's always following the projects. You know, we're not going to set up uh, an office where there's no work or no projects. You know, we'd, you know, we have to go with the projects. And I think the, the way that make is set up is just, it's all project-based. You know, there's no, nothing else other than projects. If there's no projects, there's no make. So you just chase the projects. And where if a project, um, you know, demands it or requires it, we just put teams with that particular project. So... And one thing I learned on a Hong Kong bank, there's a moment in time where we moved to site and actually lived on the site as, as architects with the contractors. And it was the best time of my life. It was fantastic. And I think I've always encouraged that on, even in London, we would put a team on site, even if it's around the corner, because we think that's the way to go. So I think for me that, that being with the project is important. So, you know, if we got offered a project somewhere else, we'd then probably set an office up for that or around that project anywhere else in the world. serious about leading your architecture or design business, you can't afford to miss Peter Verwa at the Business of Architecture and Design Conference in Sydney on November the 11th. Peter will outline vital information on growth opportunities, give you insights into working with international clients, and predict where your business opportunities lie over the next three to five years. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He thinks at a speed is just superhuman. That was Adam Haddo, Principal Director, SJB Sydney. If you run a business in the built environment industry, this keynote is essential. Register now at australiandesignreview.com. It's been quite organic growth. So mm-hmm. how do you get the, the people to come and work with you, um, you know, to be part of what Make, Make is doing? I, th- I think the ethos is, is really different to most architectural practices. A, my name's not on the business, so mm. I don't own all the shares. That, 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 I mean, the, the, the business model is quite interesting. Employer. Do you want to go into that now? It's employee-owned. Um, so the, the, the whole business is employee-owned. So all the shares are held in trust for the benefit of the employees. So if you, you imagine you've got a limited liability company and the shareholders uh, are everybody, effectively. And they're all in a all in a trust, which is a basically a if you think of it like a box, <clears throat> and all the t- shares are in this box. Um, and there's no door on the box; you can't get in the box. In fact, there is no box, but that's the way you think about it. So it's a very different business model uh, to most. Um, this means I'm not a multi-millionaire. I don't own all the shares. If I go under bush, I haven't got to you know pay pay off my wife or anything like that. Uh, if people leave, they don't, they don't have to pay them off because they actually own any shares. But it, what it does mean, you've got incredible buy-in and ownership of what you're actually doing. So people, you know, they everything, every penny we don't spend, we give back to the back to the partners, and we call ourselves partners, or we're all makers. Um, we're all we're all employees, to be honest, but we just call ourselves makers or partners. So every single penny that we don't actually spend goes back as uh, as a sort of profit share to everybody. So the encouragement is to sort of be lean and keen, not to sort of take taxes, never go first class, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, the furniture is quite cheap and cheerful, um, you know, because it's our own money, basically. Mm. It's, there, it's everybody's money. So there's this, um, this ethos that uh, also goes into sort of sharing as well. So if somebody's failing or struggling, people pile in and help them out because it's, there, it's affecting them as well. And it's just one make, you know, we have one, one make philosophy, which is includes the three studios is under one umbrella. So we have, we don't have cost centers. That's all just one make. And we just work in the three studios as if it's the same studio. 
Um, so we've worked in Sydney. We might have guys in Sydney working on stuff in Hong Kong and Hong Kong stuff working in London. Um, and we work 24 hours sometimes on projects so you can just move stuff around the world quite easily. So I think that the ethos of that, the way that office is set up, that there's not somebody at the top um, taking all the money off, having his name on the, on the business um, and spending all the money and, you know, everybody else is badly paid is the exact opposite of that. It's actually... Um, everybody's part of the business. Everybody. So it's 100% ownership? 100%, yeah, employee-owned, yeah. yeah mm. I don't own any shares. And did you get that model right from day one, or was it a bit of trying and testing no, things? No, I mean, I, I wanted to do it from day one, and I, I know I was discouraged from it. People said, no, you, you know, you're mad, because, you know, you're going to make a fortune here, Ken, and you can retire when you get to 50, 55. And I said, well, I don't think I'm going to do that anyway, because I'm not going to retire anyway. Um, and, you know, why would you want to retire? What are you going to do? Um, and I, I didn't, I've never really been interested in making tons of money. I've been interested in actually designing some beautiful buildings and actually, um, working with fantastic people. And I think that the model allows that to happen without, um, you know, any problems at all. Um, but yeah, I was discouraged from it to start with, but then I, I said, well, you know, I think it's the right way to go. So eventually we got the lawyers and accountants onto it. Um, and they came back with a model which is effectively what we call in the UK, a John Lewis model. So the John Lewis partnership is in fact exactly this, this model where, um, the uh, all all employees are effectively are shareholders in the business, um, so it's called employee owned. Um, and what's been interesting, we were the first architects to do it back in fifteen years ago, and and since then everybody's come to see me and talk about it. And a lot of architects are now transferring over. Right, so they're doing it as well. Yeah, yeah. But the, their their problem is that uh, halfway through, you know, say, and they have to, they, and the four or five partners want to get their money out before they do it. So, yeah. Right. So you know what? Um, what we we didn't have the problem about to sort of dump all our shares on the table because we hadn't got any shares. But they what they need to do to make it one hundred percent is dump all their shares on the, on the table and, and dissolve them, and then they need they can start from scratch. But I haven't met anybody yet has done that completely. They all you know want to hang on to a little bit of the share share ownership. Um, so you have to be committed if you're going to do this. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So what happens when someone leaves with this model? They just leave. They're just an employee. Right. So they don't get – they would get their bonus for the year. Right. Um, or part of the year. Um, I mean, and the bonus system, when we first set up, was really quite interesting. So we, we were making money in the early days, quite quite good money. Um, and we basically shared the profit out by three different ways – um, it was 70% based on salary. There was 15% based on points I gave to people I think had done a really good job during the year beyond the call of duty. And then the other 15%, people voted for the six people in the company they thought had done more than anybody else. Secret ballot. Those points all added together. And then you got a bonus based on the percentage of your salary, the points and the, the votes. Um, you weren't allowed to vote for anybody over 50, <laughs> so you didn't have to keep voting for me. And it became, it was really great because it been, people had to be, uh, you know, to worked hard to get a good salary, had to be nice to me, had to be nice to each other. And I think it actually was a fantastic thing to do. And it worked so well where I was, where I was quite small. And as soon as we got HR involved, which, you know, I don't know when that kicks in, about sort of 70 or 80 people, then of course they can't do that. It's all illegal, you know. Um, you know, you need to, you can't, you know, you can't just do that. <laughs> so we had to sort of stop that. So it's only now it's all on a percentage of salary. So it's a multiplier of salary. Right, okay. So it's very fair and yeah. uh, objective. Yeah. Everybody gets the same percentage, yeah, yeah. from whether they're on reception or up to me. Okay. So do people know about this before they come and work for me? Is that something that attracts them to I the business? Th- I think people um, know about it and don't quite understand it. I mean, I think youngsters out of university, I've got a clue what it means at all. Um, 
And I just, you know, assume this is the way other people work. So some people would leave us and go somewhere else and then they'd sort of phone up and come back because, you know, it's not quite the same anywhere else. Um, so I think he does it, you know, he basically retains people. At one point, we had a 1% turnover of staff, you know, which is quite, quite small. Um, and I think he does attract people to come. I think it makes a, um, a very different way of working. It's more collegiate. Um, you know, it's, it's about the whole team rather than just an individual. Um, you know, and some people, some people love it and work in it. And, you know, we've been there since the beginning. Some people find they'd rather have their name on the door or they want to, you know, be in, in control. Um, and they tend to sort of move on and do their own thing. How many people are you at the moment across one, the world? 148. 148. So um, what would be your, say, your number one tip for retaining great staff? I'm, I mean, for me, it's it's just knowing, um, just treating people right. I mean, you know, you've got to engage people. You've got to motivate them. Um, you've got to give them empowerment. You've got to reward them properly. Um and listen to people, you know, rather than dictate, um, actually make people, you know, part of the design process. So, you know, for me, the, we just go with the best idea on a project. It doesn't matter where it's come from me or come from somebody you know, else, a student out of college. We just go with that best idea. Um, so the, the, it enables people to really feel involved. And because the way I, we design is very exploratory and we're looking at new things all the time, we don't, you know, we don't have a house style. We mm. actually deliberately don't have a house style. And I'm always interested in the next thing. I've always wanted to move forward. I'm really curious about the next thing. Um, so for me, that, that sort of continual process of trying to get to the next thing is always, um, you know, retains people really well. And I think I'm always, you know, I always think I'm s- slightly one step ahead sometimes, you know, because you know, you're looking wider and thinking about the, the wider world than this particular project. Um, so there'll be other people in the business, though, driving that as well. Yeah, we, I think we all do. I think we all, we all have this... Um, curiosity mm. um to sort of move things forward and this sort of you know desire to do the right thing every time i think that's you know for me that sort of retention of staff is is about looking after them making sure they're happy um you know and we try to do that uh, you know in all sorts of other ways we've got you know full pensions we have um budgets for um social activities we have competitions we have all sorts of things that try and pull people together and keep people engaged it's more difficult across you know three studios um you know sort of you know especially with the time change at the moment which is 11 hours <laughs> sydney and london is quite difficult but yeah. there, there are you know daily catch-ups and um daily uh, vcs and phone yeah. calls and things to keep us all all together and are you across every project in the studio like that would be a big challenge <laughs> i'd imagine yeah, I mean we've 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 built eighty four buildings, um, and we you know in, f- in fifteen years that's quite fantastic, really. Mm. Um, and yeah, I know about all of them. I would um, I've had a part to play in all of them. Some more than others. So some like Five Broadgate was heavily involved. Um, you know, others less so. It just depends on the project and the client and the um, you know and the team. Um, but yeah, I mean a lot of people have you know empowered um, to get on with things they're not you know having to keep running to me every five minutes um but then they do come you know do come and show me what they're doing for, you know out of respect or out of you know the fact look, looking for guidance um and because there's no house style you know you can actually be off exploring a straw bale house or using gold or using stainless steel you know you can be looking at different things um and that allows that that energy to actually create a you know, sort of really dynamic atmosphere between the, the people, you know, the, the more senior people and the, and the younger people. And because they're all called partners, no, there's no hierarchy. I mean, there are four directors for legal reasons, but other than that, we don't really meet. Can-
Ken, when you first went out on your own mm-hmm. and started Make, uh, what were some of the challenges that you faced? Because typically at architecture school, as as far as I know, they don't teach you much about business. So, uh, and I know myself, a lot of what I've learnt has been through making mistakes and just making it up as I go. Yeah. Um, what were some of the things that you faced? I mean, I think setting up a business as an architect is, is one of those things that you, know, you are literally not taught how to do it at all. Um, and I think I picked up, um, you know, 30 years at Foster's, the idea of how, what it's like to run a company. Um, and I, so so I, I sort of had a good idea what to do. And, and I think this is really, really simple, basically. You've got to get positive cash flow. So we were paid upfront on projects when we started. We had a our first check was from a guy called Andrew Reynolds. It's five thousand um, pounds. Sort of friend today, fantastic. And he gave us that money without any drawings, so that gave us enough cash flow to keep going for the first month. And then we just got um, people to pay us up front, so we never had to borrow any money. And um, everybody who came um, came on their own salaries, the salaries they want at the moment. Um, but we didn't. I didn't pay myself for six months. Didn't pay anybody for three months. So the first bit of it, we weren't. We um, we basically didn't have a salary. We paid everybody back at three months, and I paid myself back at six months. But that that enabled us to sort of build up a little cash flow um, of positiveness without the bank, who were dying to lend us a ton of money, um, you know, and massive interest charges. You know, we didn't borrow any. And I, I've I've always thought that you know, was, I think was it was it, um, I can't remember who it was. It said, and um, a bank is like uh, gives you an umbrella when the sun's shining, but takes it back when it's raining. And I, th- I can't remember who said that. Someone, it's probably like Groucho Marx or something. But it's one of those things that I always thought that you know you you needed to have money in the bank because in a downturn, the cash is the most important thing, and you can't. The bank will want the loan back as soon as things go badly, and that's why people go down. So the first thing was to keep the money in the bank and um, and not spend more than you earn. It seems like fundamental to me. Uh, you know, we earn X, we don't want to spend X, we want to spend less than X. Um, and my gran used to say, you know, take look after the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves. You know, you basically make sure the little things um, work and then you, it all adds up to the big things working as well. So I think the money side of it is really one of the key things to get right. And then in terms of office space, Arab were fantastic. Arab lent us office space. You know, without them, it would have been much more difficult because we didn't have to, we didn't take a lease. We just it was moved into their space, and then they moved us around a few times. And as we grew, we could just you know grow without having to keep breaking leases. So, because if we'd have taken a, an office space, we would have had no idea how big it needs to be. Um, so our apps are absolutely phenomenal. They gave us computer uh, time as well. We had we were linked straight into their network. Um, they gave us printing paper, use of photostat machines. Um, and they were they were just phenomenal. Arab were just you know without Arab it would have been much more difficult for us. so so and I, I think um, setting up the insurances, um, setting up all that sort of legal stuff that you need to do, which you just don't know anything about as an architect. There was a there was an accountant at Foster's called Barry Cook who'd left a few years before, and Barry came to join us um, straight away, basically whether we wanted him or not. He said we needed him, and he was absolutely right. Um, and he came along and set up all the insurances and all that stuff that, you know, as architects, we have no idea what to do. Um, so I think those initial initial um, moments were, you know, really fantastic. Looking back on it, they were pretty hairy at the time. But, you know, I was had a rucksack. I had my computer. I had a, a little presentation. I was just going around London, walking around London, um, going to meet clients, potential clients, and uh, making sure we had enough, you know, work starting to come in. And I think... Um, you know, we were getting clients who were coming to us who would never have come to us when I was at Foster's because they'd seen us too big. Whereas, you know, setting on my own, it was a smaller outfit and so I get more personal attention. So we, we were getting clients um, 
thick and fast. And 2004 was a really good year when we set up. Um, you know, it was middle of recessions before the big crash in 2008-9. Um, so it gave us that four years to actually set up properly before the crash. Um, so we were actually in a really good place when it actually happened. So I think that those initial moments setting up the sort of the agony of deciding to, to move, you know, the sort of fear of um, failure. Um, I was always offset by the fact I'm sure I could get another job. Um, but that, that sort of, that's um, trying to make sure we didn't actually overstretch ourselves and do things that were daft in terms of money. Um, so to, to this day, we've never borrowed any money. We've just kept the positive cash flow, kept money in the bank. Uh, we've been very conservative about spending money. Um, Except on computers, it seems we just spend as much as we possibly can on oh, computers. That's and, a bottomless pit, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and every time you get a computer, you need a bigger one, you know. Yeah, exactly. The next thing you need, you need two, and then you need a, you know, then you need backup on that. And yeah. so, and we came off the Arab net- network about 10 years ago, and we've been doing our own thing ever since. To ensure your practice is ready to deal with the challenges that the industry will face in the next few years, register now at australiandesignreview.com for the inaugural Business of Architecture and Design Conference, which will be held in Sydney on Monday the 11th of November 2019. Thanks for listening to our first episode. Join us next time to hear more about Ken Shuttleworth's journey through the Business of Architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.